Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Captain Joseph K. Tossig Jr., who was on board the USS Nevada during the attack on Pearl Harbor. He took his post as starboard anti-aircraft battery officer, and even after being severely wounded, refused to abandon his post until his crew forcibly carried him to safety. He lost his left leg due to his injuries and received the Navy Cross for his bravery. On the morning of December 7, 1941, I was the officer deck of the battleship Nevada. Shortly before eight o'clock in the morning, I looked over the side and observed a torpedo plane coming in, which I casually identified as a Douglas torpedo plane. It had its torpedo doors open. The plane dropped a torpedo into Pearl Harbor. In those days, our torpedoes could not run until they dove at least 80 feet, and Pearl Harbor was only about 40 feet deep. So I assumed we would watch them dig the torpedo out of the mud all morning. The plane peeled off and I noticed that it had the rising sun on its, under its wings. And almost simultaneously, the torpedo hit the USS Oklahoma, which was a battleship that was moored uh, two ships ahead of us. Between the Oklahoma and Nevada was the battleship Arizona. Immediately, I sounded general quarters and started up from my battle station, which was in the anti-aircraft directors of the ship, high on the foremast. As I climbed the three ladders to the boat deck on which our anti-aircraft guns were located, all of the guns on my battery, which were seven five-inch 25 guns, were firing. I had to climb up three more decks from the boat deck to get to the director, which told the anti-aircraft guns in which direction to fire. As I climbed into the director, I realized that one of our gunner's mates had set the guns to fire vertically, which was very unusual because in peacetime, we could not fire at an angle over 65 degrees. And all the guns were firing. I climbed into the director, which was basically a dummy gun. It had a telescope which pointed at the aircraft targets. And when I looked into the check site, the director was already on an aircraft, and there were literally hundreds of puffs of black smoke in the air as all ships were firing about that time. So we could not tell which was our gunfire and which was somebody else's. I have no real idea how many planes were up there because what happens in battle is you rivet your attention on the target at the moment. And I was watching this one airplane that was in my check sites, and it started to smoke and started to fall out of the sky. And we swung the director around to look for another aircraft, and I was hit at that time. Uh, we were pretty well brought up that the Japanese would attack the United States fleet at some place. There was a lot of argument whether it would be in the Canal Zone, Guam, the Philippines, uh, or Pearl Harbor. The smart money was it would not be at Pearl Harbor because of the concentration of sea power that we had in the area. We felt they would probably attack the Philippines first because the Japanese objective had to be the Dutch Indies and the Malaysia Peninsula because of their lack of raw materials to fight the war in China. We were surprised, but not uh, 
emotionally, uh, particularly uh, surprised. Uh, we were prepared. We knew, uh, and it always had the guns manned and ready in the morning hours, uh, half an hour before sunrise. We always had enough men at our guns to man them in case of an attack. The Japanese, we felt, had good ships, but not very good technology. We did not think that their aircraft were nearly as good as they turned out to be. Uh, most of the intelligence information that I, as an anti-aircraft officer, had was well out of date. We had pictures of biplanes and triplanes even, and that's why I was very much surprised when I identified a plane as a, one of our torpedo planes to find out it was a Japanese torpedo plane. There was a general perception that the Japanese had no originality. They were excellent copiers if they could find the proper thing to copy. We didn't have too much respect uh, for them as technicians. We didn't have too much respect for them as fighting people. We should have because their history in China had been pretty good. All ships were ordered to get underway and uh, so the Nevada made preparations to get underway. And once again, we were a very fortunate ship. We were already prepared to get underway. Uh, we had six boilers on the ship to make steam for the turbines, and we never let our six boilers go cold. We always kept steam up in our boilers. So we were able to get underway very, very rapidly in about 20 minutes, as opposed to usual hour and a half. So the Nevada, started out from her berth, and just shortly before we got underway, the battleship Arizona, which was just ahead of us, 10 yards, uh, blew up. And I thought for many years that what had wounded me had been a piece of the Arizona. And I only learned a couple of years ago that it was a Japanese strafing plane had turned and uh, came back and hit me. As I was talking to one of my shipmates at a ship reunion and learned that. As we proceeded to get underway, I was the off the deck and could not get to the conning tower. And I knew that we had no other qualified off the decks above the rank of ensign on board. And I tried to find another ensign uh, who was qualified off the deck and uh, didn't find one. Eventually, a very, very professional lieutenant who was a communications officer did help the ship maneuver out, and a very competent reserve lieutenant commander eventually got up there to help. But mainly the maneuvering of the ship was done by professional enlisted personnel, particularly the chief quartermaster, a man named Sedbury. And uh, he did all the maneuvering. Uh, occasionally he would call me on the telephone to ask my permission to do what he was doing which was rather irrelevant because he had been on the ship almost as long as I'd been alive and knew it very, very well. The very fortunate thing in our Navy in those days, we had totally professional uh, petty officers and chief petty officers on the ships. We did not rotate our personnel. So most of the senior enlisted men had started off on the ship as seamen. So they knew the ship backwards and forwards and uh, therefore the seamen could do and the sailors could do a tremendously fine job. Uh, the battleship Nevada got underway, three cruisers got underway, and seven destroyers got underway. We were the only battleship that was capable. We lost three permanently. We lost the old mine layer Ogallala, which was a wooden hull ship. We lost the Arizona, which blew up. We did not repair the Oklahoma, which had turned over. But when we righted it, we could have prepared it, but we didn't. The principal targets were the battleships. The Japanese expected the aircraft carriers to be in, but the aircraft carriers had been on a special mission up to uh, put more aircraft up at Wake and Midway, and they were on their way back, so they were not in that morning. So the battleships became the major target. Oh yes, the attack was definitely successful. Uh, they tied our hands for five, six, seven months. Uh, matter of fact, they really overestimated the damage because in May of 1942, they tried to attack Midway. And the Japanese were very much surprised to see the tremendous naval force we had available and defeated them very badly at Midway. 
So there's a lot of psychological reaction. Uh, the American public thought we were damaged far worse than we were, and the Japanese thought we were damaged far worse than we were. But the fact is, we were damaged pretty badly, too. Well, my emotions are rather unusual. The thing that hurt me the most was the loss of our 53 uh, shipmates that we lost that morning killed. There were well over 100 of us wounded. We still don't know how many were wounded because many of the men would not admit that they were wounded for fear of being transferred off the ship. Uh, since I've been in the Navy Department, I've gotten four Purple Hearts for four of the shipmates who wouldn't admit they were wounded at the time. Uh, I felt those losses very keenly, particularly the loss of Chief Boson Ed Hill and a first-class boson mate named Adolfo Solart, of whom I was very, very fond and stood a lot of watches. As far as I was concerned personally, I uh, never felt any rancor. I felt I was a professional naval officer and I was doing my professional job and that the Japanese were professional officers doing their job. Of course, I hated the Japanese government and I hated everything that they stood for, but I could recognize as a professional military officer that we were really in combat with their professional military officers. It was very difficult for me to uh, hold any rancor for them. I was the administrative aide to the Commander Pearl Harbor Naval Base from 1949 to 1951, which gave rise to a fable in the Navy that whenever I went to Pearl Harbor, I started a war because the Korean War started that time. But uh, no, I've been to Pearl Harbor many, many times and have absolutely uh, no rancor. I, I do feel this awfully, awfully deep tinge of sadness for the men, the shipmates we lost. Uh, and the rest of it, uh, we have a tremendous pride in the Nevada because we were able to get underway. Uh, we also have a pride that our ship received more Congressional Medals of Honor and more Navy crosses than any ship in the Navy before or after is received. So when I go to Pearl Harbor, I have a tremendous pride in my ship and tremendous feeling of loss of the shipmates. My family was rather intimately involved in the preliminaries to Pearl Harbor. Uh, my father had been the head of the Department of Strategy and Tactics at the Naval War College and the chief of staff at the Naval War College. And in 1936, when I was 16 years old, I cruised with my father, who was then commander of a battleship division, out to Pearl Harbor in the summer of 1936. And they did a war game, which was basically a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. In 1940, my father was the commandant of the 5th Naval District in Norfolk. And at that time, his career was basically over. He was going to retire in that job. The Congress was holding hearings on the fortification of Guam and the Philippines in really anticipation of problems with Japan. And because my father's career was basically over, he was going to retire in 1941, uh, he was chosen by the Navy Department in a sort of a sub rosa way to do the testifying on the fortifying of Guam and the Philippines. And in April of 1940, they held a hearing and they asked him, after reviewing the situation with Japan in China, uh, the situation of our having a steel embargo, oil embargo, threats of other embargoes, what his opinion was. And he stated before the Congress that in his opinion, if the present trends continued, war with Japan was inevitable. And this turned out to be a very unfortunate statement on an unfortunate day. Nothing of any moment happened that day, and this made the headlines. And this made Mr. Roosevelt very angry because he felt that a naval officer had no business making what he considered political statements. My father's position was, they asked me the question and I told him the answer. And he was severely reprimanded by the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Stark, who oddly enough, the USS Stark that was hit in the Persian Gulf was named after. And Admiral Stark did this to keep the president from trying to punish my father. And Admiral Stark made a very informal telephone call, told my mother that my father had been reprimanded because my father was still driving back to Norfolk. Well, the general perception of the Navy was that the Japanese would have to take 
the Dutch East Indies and have to take the Malay Peninsula to get the tin, rubber, oil, raw materials they needed to fight the war in China. In order to take them, they had to get the Philippines off their flank because they would be attacking the Dutch and the British who were natural allies of ours. So the issue was really, do you fortify the Philippines? And if you fortify the Philippines, do you back it up by fortifying Guam? And that was a cardinal issue that the Congress had been addressing very thoroughly. Mr. Roosevelt was not particularly pleased with it because he thought it might aggravate the Japanese and be cause for them to possibly attack us. And, uh, but the Navy and the Army was 100% behind the idea of forward arming. Uh, this nation has never had uh, foreign troops on its shores since the War of 1812. And the projection of power has been a cardinal principle behind that fact that foreign troops simply do not get that close to the United States. And the way you keep them off is you get out there ahead and uh, they don't dare come in or they try to come in, you clobber them. So the Army and the Navy people felt very, very forcefully that we should project the power out to the Philippines and back it up at Guam to make it unprofitable for the Japanese to try to attack us. Generally speaking, the Japanese split their attack into three classes of aircraft. One were the high-level bombers, one were the dive bombers, and one were the torpedo planes. And where the original plan was to come in in two waves, the first having all three types of aircraft, and strike simultaneously, their timing was a little bit off, uh, simply because they didn't have any way to radio contact among themselves. The leader, a lieutenant commander named Fushida, uh, shot one very pistol in the air, which was the signal that was a surprise attack. And he told me later that he didn't think some of them saw the very pistol, so he shot another one for a non-surprise attack. And some saw it as a surprise, and some saw it as a non-surprise. However, in the tactical situation, it really made very little difference. The torpedo planes were targeted to the large ships. The dive bombers were targeted to the large ships and the small ships. And the high-level bombers were targeted to the large ships. The high-level bombers were very, very inaccurate. Uh, they did very, very little damage. Uh, concurrently, our anti-aircraft to shoot at them was very inaccurate. So it was sort of a Mexican standoff. We didn't hit many of them, they didn't hit many of us. The dive bombers and the torpedo planes were almost impossible to hit. We had no ordnance uh, available that could hit low-flying airplanes except 30 and 50 caliber machine guns. The lesson the Japanese failed to learn was that at the Battle of Midway, six months later, they came in with heavy numbers of torpedo planes and we had armed the ships with 30, 20s, and 40 millimeter guns, and they just clobbered the Japanese torpedo fleet. But at Pearl Harbor, the torpedo plane did the major damage. The torpedo planes dive bombers came in together, and then the high-level bombers, which should have come at the same time, came in three or four or five minutes later. Then on the second wave, it was practically all high-level bombers. After they dropped the ordnance, they started to uh, become strafing planes. And they would just pick out targets of opportunity on ships, decks, or in the water, or boats in the water, and just spray machine gun bullets all over the place. The strafing was very effective uh, in killing and wounding people on the top side. It didn't hurt the ships very much. The seamen in the boats caught on very quickly, and they realized the Japanese aircraft, most of the guns were in the wings, and they would turn the stern of their boats to the nose of the aircraft, and the bullets would go on either side of their boat. So very few in the boats got hurt. The attack lasted about 30 minutes, then there was a lull, and the second attack came in and lasted about 20 minutes. And all in all, it was about an hour and a half. No, the Japanese failed to cut our logistics tail. They did not hit the repair shops at Pearl. They did not hit the fuel depot, 
They did not hit the ammunition depot. Their whole concentration was basically and fundamentally in Pearl Harbor on the ships. The outlying air bases, they were basically on the aircraft that were at those bases. Uh, the perception that we were physically devastated was uh, a product of the psychological shock and the physical shock and the rumors. Nobody was allowed to talk about which ships had been damaged. My fiance knew because she could get the casualty lists and she had the published ship assignments after we graduated from the Naval Academy and she could merely say, well, if uh, Doug Hine was wounded, the Arizona must have gotten hit. And if Victor Delano was wounded, the West Virginia must have gotten hit. And she could go through that list of casualties and know which ships had gotten hit. They didn't have any idea the extent of the damage. And in the final analysis, the major losses were on Arizona and on Oklahoma, which turned over. And Nevada was probably the third highest casualties. <laughs> I was wounded, apparently, I thought, by the explosion of the Arizona for many years. Apparently, I had been hit by a strafing machine gun, which caught me uh, right at the gluteal fold, just below my fanny. And it took out four inches of bone out of my thigh. And uh, just, that was it. And uh, I was able to keep conscious and keep control of the guns the rest of the morning because apparently I was in shock because I had no pain and I was totally aware of what I was doing. And uh, a pharmacist mate came up on the mast and brought a stretcher and put me in the stretcher and uh, I lay up there until the uh, mast started to burn. And then when the mast started to burn, they had to evacuate me. But that time the uh, battle was over. I was picked up by a boat from the destroyer Shaw, which had blown up in the one of the dry docks. A young ensign, never forget his name, named Hollingsworth, reserve ensign from uh, North Carolina, had been blown off the ship, dropped 40 feet to the dry dock floor, apparently wasn't hurt, picked himself up, commandeered a small 36-foot boat, and uh, he was came alongside the Nevada when I was lowered in to his boat on the stretcher. He took me to the fleet dock and I was put into a taxi in the stretcher. And I remember very clearly getting the taxi driver's name and his license number and all the information, his address, because I was bleeding all over his taxi. And I was gonna be sure the government paid for the taxi. When I got in the hospital, of course, they took all my clothes and I lost my notes. So I hope somebody fixed the taxi driver up because he had a messy cab when I got out of it. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. This is Ken Harbaugh, the host of Warriors in Their Own Words. A quick note to our listeners. In the next part of the interview, you'll hear a change in sound quality. That's because much of this portion was recorded on board a Navy ship in Pearl Harbor. Though the audio quality isn't what you're used to, the setting itself is part of the story that Captain Tossig is sharing. Thank you. Well, the Arizona was just, you could hardly see anything. It was just nothing but smoke, flames, and terror. Uh, we were conscious that the foremost was tilted forward, as you see in these pictures. But 
mainly it was just terrible smoke, terrible flame. And uh, as we passed her, we caught fire from her fires. So we caught fire on our starboard side of the ship while we were passing. And uh, there wasn't much detail that you could see. We could see her stern. But at that time, I got hit. So I spent the rest of my time uh, sort of playing a feeling game. Uh, I was the officer deck and uh, coordinating with the bridge. Uh, we agreed that we had to head out the harbor. So the Nevada started to head out the harbor. We had another problem coming alongside the Arizona. She had had the Vestal, a repair ship alongside of her. And Vestal had cast off. And so we had to go between the Vestal and the Arizona. And uh, took us much closer to the Arizona than we probably otherwise would have gone. Uh, when we were leaving the uh, casting off our forward lines, we had one of the great tragedies of my life. Uh, I was a warrant officer, Chief Boson Hill, and my uh, boson mate of the watch, the first class boson mate named Adolfo Solar. Ships were named after both of those men. Uh, they were having troubles getting the lines off, and uh, Boson Hill jumped from the ship, swam over to the quay, and cast the lines off, and swam back to the ship. And just after they got the lines off, a bomb struck us in the forecastle and killed them both. And that was just a tremendous loss to me because uh, those two men epitomized professionalism to me. They were people I looked up to, I trusted, believed in, they were my teachers. And uh, when I get uh, teary-eyed, it's about those two men. They were the great, two great sailors that I knew and I could never know any better ones because they were the top flight. Now I came up here, West Virginia had been hit by, it turned out, seven torpedoes. And West Virginia was in terrible shape. Next to the Arizona, Oklahoma, West Virginia lost more people. Uh, they had a fearful problem down below uh, because of the torpedoes that hit her. Nevada was only hit by one torpedo. Uh, West Virginia, why she didn't roll over, nobody knows, but she settled straight down. I'm not quite sure exactly what time I was hit. I was in the, what we call the port director, anti-aircraft director, which was a box about eight feet uh, square and about six feet high, and it had the machinery in there that controlled our anti-aircraft guns and I was controlling the anti-aircraft guns, the uh, five guns on the starboard battery. And uh, when I got there, the guns were already shooting. And I looked, at, we had an eyepiece, which was a telescope, but I looked through my eyepiece, and when I looked, we were already on an airplane. And I watched, and there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of puffs of smoke. So nobody really knew whose shells were up there, but the, uh, planes started to go down in flames. So I turned the director to find another airplane. And as I was turning the director, I was hanging onto a doorway and I felt as if somebody hit me on the bottom of the foot with a sledgehammer. And I looked down and my left foot was under my left armpit. And sort of the reaction of the moment was that's a hell of a place for foot to be. And I turned my attention back to the director and it was obvious that Whatever had gone through my leg had gone into the director and it was no good. So I told the director crew that I was going to leave the director and to come around back of me and I would slump down in their arms and they could carry me into what we call sky control, which is a room between the starboard and the port director. And I was carried into sky control and I realized I was the only officer up there. So being the only officer up there, I checked, uh, the 50 caliber machine gun batteries, checked the 30 caliber machine gun batteries, and the starboard and port five inch guns. And apparently all were firing. The Marines had the 50 caliber guns. Uh, they were very unhappy because those were water-cooled guns and the water lines had been severed at some time. I don't know when they were severed. And so the uh, barrels were welding into the slides. 
and they were shooting the guns one shot at a time. They'd open the uh, breech, put a shell in, and hit it with a mallet. And this wasn't very effective machine gun shooting. But we'd already been very lucky because they'd already shot down one torpedo plane before they lost the cooling. And apparently our 30 caliber machine guns on the mainmast had shot down another torpedo plane. So Nevada was lucky. We only had one torpedo hit. While the rest of the ships up Battleship Row, like West Virginia, got seven. Uh, the second wave was mostly high-level bombers. And uh, that was sort of a standoff. Their bombing was very inaccurate. And our anti-aircraft for high level was very inaccurate. So uh, we didn't hit many of them, and they didn't hit much of us. But as Nevada, we were about here when the second wave came in. And whatever their assigned targets were, apparently by radio or some signal, they were assigned to get us because they felt if they could sink us in the channel, then we could block the whole channel of Pearl Harbor and there could be no uh, rescue. So as we were right here, uh, coming alongside California and Maryland, California was outboard, Maryland was inboard. Uh, Maryland had the uh, senior admiral, Admiral Train, who was watching all of this. And uh, as we were coming out now, we had been hit on the port side with a torpedo, so we were pretty far down the bow. Uh, we had counter-flooded starboard side forward because of a fire in order to save the anti-aircraft magazines. The further we got out, we got hit by another bomb on the forecastle, and that ignited all of our aviation gas and all the paint on the ship. And we had this fearful fire then uh, coming out of the bow of the ship, so we had to flood more. And what Admiral Train saw from Maryland without being able to talk to us all he could see was the Nevada getting further and further down by the head, where our forecastle was getting deeper and deeper in the water. And because uh, he was afraid that the ship would sink in the channel. So that's when he ordered us to go aground. And it was up here away up at Hospital Point. Meanwhile, we came by Oklahoma, which was one of our sister ships. The Nevada was hull number 36. Oklahoma was 37, and Arizona was 38. And we were the oldest, next oldest, and so she was the next oldest. She'd been hit by several torpedoes, and she had rolled over. So everybody, of course, was really upset about that as we came out. But by this time, uh, all we knew we could do was shoot anti-aircraft guns. So our whole attention was basically use anything you had to shoot and shoot at whatever you could shoot at. And none of it was very accurate. Uh, we did not have the right guns. Uh, six months later at the Battle of Midway, the ships had the right guns. And the whole story of the war from then on, from Midway on, was entirely different. And uh, the guns we were lacking were known as 20 millimeter and 40 millimeter machine guns. And uh, these were very effective. Yes, uh, we were instructed to run aground because Admiral Train felt we were sinking. Uh, well, he saw that we were getting further and further down by the forecastle because of the flooding we were having to do to stop the fires from destroying our magazines. And we just kept pouring more and more and more water in there, uh, trying to, number one, protect the magazines, number two, try to get the fires out. But priority was protect the magazines. And then the second priority was get the fire out. And so we were using massive amounts of water. And although she was a very large ship, uh, she was going down uh, by the nose. And the Admiral felt that. And uh, although we were sort of running by now by consensus, uh, Lieutenant Commander Thomas, the senior officer, had apparently gotten up to the bridge by this time. Uh, the Chief Quartermaster said, Barry, who was the real professional, he knew how to handle the ship. And he was really doing the actual steering, actual maneuvering to our supposed orders. Uh, they did not feel that they should run aground here because that would block this dry dock, which was here. So the decision was made, we'll try to get out the harbor 
and maybe the Admiral changed his mind. So we sort of skirted out of here and headed for that point, which is Hospital Point. And uh, we got about 200 yards from that, and the Admiral put an emergency flag above his signal to run aground, and that meant we couldn't fool around. The Admiral said, run aground now, we gotta run aground. So uh, the consensus was taken, and uh, we decided the hospital point was a good place. And unfortunately, I've always been accused of being self-serving. Having been wounded, they figured if I went on the ground on hospital point, I'd be close to the hospital. And well, it turned out it didn't work out that way because uh, a tug came. They were afraid that the stern would swing out and block the harbor. Well, the scenario of the timing uh, is very difficult to grasp in retrospect. Had we set a time limit one hour ahead for the warning, this would hardly have given many ships much chance to get underway because most ships took about an hour just to get started and uh, then to decide which were going out first and all the battle orders. Uh, and considering the speed of the ships, the ships would not have been very far from the harbor entrance, uh, given an hour warning. Uh, given a two-hour warning, they wouldn't even been much further than that. So uh, when they talk about a warning, a warning that was less than uh, 24 hours, probably didn't make an awful lot of difference one way or the other. Uh, my personal opinion was that had we been at sea and had the Japanese found us, those two ifs, the casualty rates would have been much higher. Because as it was, no ship sank at Pearl Harbor in more than 40 feet of water. Therefore, we were able to get all the ships up and back into action, except three. Whereas, had we been at sea and they'd sunk in 500 or 5,000 feet of water, we would never have gotten them back. And we'd have probably lost many, many more people because picking people up at sea as opposed to harbor is much more difficult. So as far as warning was concerned, uh, short of a 24-hour warning, it probably made no difference at all, except in our favor. Yes, the torpedo planes and uh, some of the dive bombers, their uh, point of entry to the harbor was over the oil tank farm. And had they dropped bombs in the oil tank farm, it would have taken our logistics support away from us in petroleum for quite an appreciable period of time, maybe four, or five, or six months. And I asked one of the admirals, Japanese admirals, why they hadn't dropped bombs in the tank farm. And he said, because they didn't give medals for dropping bombs in tank farms, which was a rather American attitude. And I asked him why they had not dropped bombs in Westlock ammunition storage. Because had they done that, we would have had the largest explosion up to the Hiroshima explosion the world had ever seen, if not even larger than Hiroshima. Because we had thousands and thousands of tons of ammunition up there. His response to that was he didn't know it existed. And that was very bad intelligence on their part because we had ships' parties on the other side of a fence and you could look at all the shells and all the powder uh, through a fence. But those uh, were two things the Japanese would have been far more successful had they uh, gone after. People like Captain Miller versus people like me who are called heroes are entirely different. Uh, I had no choice. Uh, once I was up in the sky control place, and once I was wounded, my only choice was to stay there and really do my job, which I did. Uh, people like Captain Miller, who were not hurt, were free to run if they wanted to, or free to stand and fight. So their heroism is much more personal. Uh, they were the ones that could have done things to make themselves more personally safe. Instead of that, in the face of very hot fires, very much smoke, very much uh, agony, uh, he stood his ground. He saw, along with Lieutenant Commander Fuqua, uh, that all the people were off the ship they could get off the ship before he tried to save himself. And uh, those people, to me, are the real heroes because they really had a choice. Uh, when they call people like me heroes, it's really a team 
sort of a thing. Uh, I'm decorated because my men stood by me and allowed me to keep control of the batteries. And uh, so I think people like Captain Miller, to me, are far more heroic uh, than people like myself. I think I have a very professional attitude toward myself as a professional naval officer. And I felt I was professional at Pearl Harbor. And uh, we professionals pay the price of our profession. And it occurred to my fate to be four and a half years in the hospital. Uh, that's the way it went. But I, <laughs> I was a professional officer and that just came with the uh, territory. I would far preferred to spend the six weeks I thought I was going to spend, but it turned out it was four and a half years. That's just the way the ball rolls. Here we have really the story about the channel marker directly across the channel is Nevada Point. And uh, we rather brag in Nevada that we were the only one that got underway that morning. And they thought we were sinking. Actually, we weren't sinking. We had just kept getting lower and lower and lower down by the bow because we had a torpedo in the port side forward in the bow. Uh, we counter-flooded wrongly. We counter-flooded starboard side forward. We should have counter-flooded starboard side aft. Then a bomb hit the forecastle and lit off the aviation gasoline and the paint in the paint locker forward. So we had this fearsome fire coming up uh, in the forward part of the ship and that created more flooding so we had to flood some more forward. And Admiral Train, uh, who was a senior officer, was watching us on Maryland. He thought we were just sinking. We were getting lower and lower and lower, and he was afraid we would sink in the channel. So he ordered us aground, and at that time we were down uh, further north from here at uh, dry dock number one. And we started slow at dry dock number one, and then we figured that was a worse place to run aground. Yeah. And so we started out the uh, channel again, and he put an emergency signal for us to run aground. And the plan was to go out in the reef and use our guns to be an offshore battery. But when he put the emergency signal, we all decided we better put the uh, guns. We were taking uh, a bad beating topside. When the torpedo had already hit us, but the strafing planes were getting us, and we lost about 53 men topside. And uh, we were using second, third, fourth string gun crews. As we lose our first string anti-aircraft crews, the second string would come in, and the third string. And we taught everybody on the ship, all the men who were over six foot two, had been taught to be first loaders. Because we anticipated that the air uh, compressors that needed to load those guns would go out, so we needed big men to load them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why all of these people uh, listed here killed in action, practically all of them were topside people, all at the guns, even though it wasn't their, uh, their job. Your uh, classmate, Ernie Dunlap, who was wounded, mm -hmm. was actually a main battery spotter. But since we had no main battery ammunition on board, he went down and started getting the secondary battery off and going. And the secondary battery could only fire at an angle of about 15 degrees elevation, but he shot consistently at the low-flying airplanes. And the first one he saw, he missed by about uh, 10 feet from the stern, so he cranked on some right deflection and got the next one right on the nose. And then the problem was he, uh, a bomb hit that casemate. And uh, Ernie was very, very severely wounded. Knocked out one of his eyes and uh, broke his face up pretty badly. But uh, we had a lot of them did that. Uh, the two aviators on board who were killed. Uh, because we had no aircraft on board, they went down and opened up in that secondary battery. Uh, Hal Christopher was another ensign who was a communicator. And since we had no communications, he went down and uh, took care of those batteries. So we lost uh, four ensigns who had no real job that morning. We lost them uh, very much like you were. Uh, they manned the gaps that there were supposed to be. And uh, unfortunately, we lost them while they were manning the gaps. And uh, 
We're very proud of this old ship and very proud of the people who are on her. And one of the things that we used to pride ourselves on was we were the oldest battleship out here. And our conduct reports from the shore patrol uh, were about 85% fighting ashore. And the report was always uh, fighting ashore, the shore patrol, bring them back. The executive officer would ask them why they were fighting ashore. And they'd all swear they only had two beers. And somebody said that their ship was better than Nevada and the fight would start and the shore patrol would send them back. And the executive officer would say, well, uh, you've performed a very serious military offense. But in view of the situation, I'll let you offer the warning this time. And I asked him many, many years later why he never gave anybody more than a warning. And he said he wasn't about to spoil the morale of the ship. And uh, we, we, we were proud. We, we thought we had the best ship in the Navy, even if we were the oldest one out here. And uh, so this is sort of our uh, monument out here, our memorial. And uh, not many people see it, but to us who are on Nevada, it means a great deal. The two names in particular that uh, strike me very hard, one is Adolfo Solar. Solar was always my bosun mate of the watch when I had the watch. Uh, Solar had very little schooling and he could not make chief petty officer, but he was a 100% complete professional. He knew his business better than any man I've ever known. The other was a warrant officer bosun. And uh, his name was Edward J. Hill. Hill to all of us was the great father. Hill spent all of his life being sure that we young officers didn't get in a lot of trouble. And Boson Hill, because he loved my father, who was a Navy admiral, uh, watched over me whenever I had the watch like a bird. I mean, I was not going to make any mistakes that anybody would know about. I could make a lot of mistakes, but he'd correct them before they got there. And when the uh, ship was ordered underway, both Solar and Boson Hill were on the forecastle casting off the lines to get the ship loose. One of the lines got fouled on the interrupted key, and Boson Hill swam over to the key, undid the line, swam back to the ship, continued, completed his job, and just after he completed his job, a bomb came and killed both Boson Hill and uh, Petty Officer Solar. And I look at these names, and uh, these are the two that really affect me the most because I was so close to them. Uh, they were such professional people, and uh, I had the privilege of working with them so intimately. Of course, many of the others I do recognize, uh, a lot of them are very, very young people. A lot of them were 17, 18-year-old young people that we thought were going to be disasters if there was a fight. And it turned out they fought just as well as anybody else. The, uh, the age and experience had nothing to do with the performance of the people. They did what they had to do, when they had to do it, and uh, what they lacked in training, they made up in ingenuity. And because uh, I feel that today, I work with sailors today, and I see the same, same thing. Uh, I look at the people who were decorated, and there are many, many names that are not on that list, that should have been on that list. But the problem was, of the uh, Navy crosses and congressional medals awarded, the Nevada got almost one-third of them all. And they felt that that was more than a ship deserved. And we of the ship, of course, felt it wasn't nearly enough because we had the best ship in the Navy anyway. And uh, should have gotten everybody who did these marvelous acts of bravery should have been rewarded. Uh, one in particular uh, was a first-class boatswain mate named Robert Norman, Swede Norman, great big man. And he was responsible for my being here today. He looked up the mast after the Japanese had left. The mast was on fire. And there were five sailors up there with me, and he wanted to know why they didn't get down from the mast and the fire. And they informed him that I was up there, they couldn't get me down. 
So he climbed the mast and at great risk to himself personally, he got very badly burned. He engineered uh, getting some lines, tying me in the stretcher and lifting the stretcher over the side so they could lower me three decks to get me out of the mast. And the man was badly burned and uh, nobody except me really gave him much thanks. And uh, I see him quite often now. We've become very, very good friends. He's a, he was commissioned, he's a retired Navy captain now. He commanded five ships during his naval career. He was a superb professional. And I always felt that uh, people like Norman, who everybody knew were so outstanding and at their own personal risk, should have gotten some kind of an award, but those are the way the things go. And so we all wear our decorations for the rest of the ship. That's basically what we do. The uh, uh, Don Ross, who is our sole surviving Congressional Medal of Honor winner, uh, wears his Congressional Medal for all of us because he was awarded the medal, but he knew that without being on the team and the team working together, we wouldn't be here anyway. That was Captain Joseph K. Tossig, Jr. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.